Thank you for listening to our Emmanuel Baptist Church podcast sermon series by Pastor Sean Cole. Emmanuel exists to display God's glory, declare God's gospel, and to disciple for God's great commission. If you have any questions about this message or would like more information about our church, you can visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. It's kind of, I count it a privilege every time I, I get to, to preach and to share what God has laid on my heart. Um, if you remember last week, I, I mentioned that uh, going through seminary, one of the books I've been soaking in and just spending a lot of time in is the book of Galatians. Um, it's been one of those books that's really been imprinted on me uh, lately. Just uh, Paul's thought, just trying to be clear with the gospel, defining it and defending the gospel against its critics. So that's really what Paul is about in the book of Galatians. Um, but did you know, I, I found this out, I just looked this up this week, um, during the years 2013-2014, the U.S. government seized nearly $90 million in counterfeit money. So counterfeit bills that were floating around, $90 million domestically. So that's over here, and almost the same amount overseas. So, you know, if, if you went to a bank or a store, you may have even used a counterfeit bill and wouldn't have even known that you've done that. Um, presently, there's over, and I'm not kidding, I, I found this out. It's on the internet, so it's got to be true. Um, 85,000 Elvis impersonators. Now, I don't know who had the time to go around and count the Elvis impersonators because I really want to know who they are because I think they need a life. But some of these Elvis impersonators, I'm, I'm sure, are pretty good and some maybe not so good. But why, why talk about counterfeit money or Elvis impersonators? Well, they're all imitations of the real thing. And so last week, if you remember, we, we looked about the gospel message and, and what it was, uh, how we defined it, and this week we're going to kind of pick up where we left off, because the Galatian church is dealing with a false gospel. So we're going to read uh, Galatians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. It says this, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. But there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So before we really unpack this section of scripture that we're looking at, I kind of wanted to make a comment about something that isn't in the book of Galatians. Now, I want to be careful here because anytime you make an argument from silence, uh, you need to be careful about that because it may or may not be true. But a common pattern in those days was in your letters, you had a section in that letter of thanksgiving. And so the book of Galatians is very unique in the fact that Paul is writing to a church and he doesn't include that section. So that would have struck the Galatians as something very abrupt and very stark. It would have startled them uh, when they were reading Paul's letter for the first time. And when you think about it, it's kind of interesting. You go back and you trace some of Paul's other letters. Like you look at his letter for the Corinthian church, to example. Now, if you know anything about the Corinthian church, that was a church that had issues. And that's being polite. They had many, many problems. Uh, we had Christians suing one another, you know, taking each other to, to court to, to get money from each other. There were divisions. Some were saying, hey, I follow Paul. He's my favorite teacher. Hey, I like Apollos. He's my favorite teacher. And so they were fighting over who their favorite teacher was in this church. Um, there was also uh, incest in this church, uh, drunkenness at the Lord's Supper, so, and much more. So that's in the Galatian church. Yet, yet even, I mean, 
Corinthian church. But even in the Corinthian church, uh, Paul writes a thanksgiving section. So it's kind of surprising that when you go to the book of Galatians and they're struggling with a different gospel, it's like, man, that, that seems really abrupt. But for Paul, the gospel was such a central thing that as, as soon as you got away from it, it was, it was a very bad place to be. So that's why Paul writes in verse 6 that he's astonished, uh, dismayed, marveling. He's, he's uh, not really understanding. He's like, I, I don't quite get what's going on with you, why you're so quickly deserting the gospel that I, that I turned and I preached to you, and you're turning to a different gospel. So Paul is using a military word here of deserting. This idea that, that you are on one side of the battlefield and you're going to the other side and you're going to fight the, for the enemy. Or another way that it was used to take something that was behind you and to set it in front of you. Uh, regardless of how Paul's really using this word, I think he's basically calling the, the Galatian church spiritual Benedict Arnold's or spiritual turncoats. So Paul, Paul is dismayed. He's like, man, I can't believe you guys are, are, are taking something that's supposed to be behind you, putting it in front. You're deserting the true gospel. And not only that, you're, you're doing it so quickly. It's as if you didn't really think through this a whole lot. Like you heard this new gospel and all of a sudden like, oh, you're all over it. Um, I think some of us Christians are kind of like that as soon as we hear some sort of new teaching. You know, we can be very tempted to jump into that new teaching. And I don't think we, we want to be like the Galatian church. Like, we don't want to be like them. They hear something new and they get excited about it and they jump on board right away without really using our spiritual discernment. But what was the nature of that other gospel that Paul is describing here? Well, Paul's opponents in the book of Galatians are the Judaizers. Now, you may ask, okay, what's a Judaizer? Well, Acts 15.1 uh, sums up their teaching by saying this. There are these teachers going around saying this, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Um, so not only were, were they attacking the Judaizers, Paul's gospel, but they're actually attacking Paul himself and his credentials as an apostle. So it's as if like these Judaizers came into these different Galatian churches and were saying something along these lines. They're like, you know, you know, it's good what Paul delivered to you, what Paul preached to you. His, his gospel was pretty good. However, he was kind of missing a few things in his gospel. You see, he wasn't really taught directly by Christ. You know, he, he didn't actually get this message directly from God. And so, because of that, he missed out on a few things. Since we're from Jerusalem, we have the, the real gospel, and we really know what's going on. And so, what he really kind of left out was this idea that you guys, as Gentiles, you need to be circumcised in order to be saved. So he should have included that, because if you're going to be a part of the people of God, you've got to be circumcised, like us Jews. And if you really want to be a part of that, that's what you need to do. And not just that, you should really start kind of following some of our customs, uh, keep our calendar, and things like that. So to get your Christian faith to the next level, you need to start acting like a Jew. So I may or may not be like, you know, right in how I presented their, their viewpoint, but that's essentially what they were doing in this church. So the, the Galatian church is young, kind of immature, and, and being too trusting of these false teachers. So Paul's getting wind of what's being taught in these churches, and that's why he writes the book of Galatians. It's a scorching, white-hot letter that he writes to, collect, to, to correct the Galatian church. So he says that accepting the message that his opponents are bringing, that, that message I just described of the Judaizers, is a deserting of the true gospel. 
Now, what was so wrong about that false gospel of the Judaizers? You see, Paul's opponents had parts of the gospel correct, yet they added to it. And what they basically said is law plus gospel equals salvation. So that's what they did. They added the law to the gospel. Um, So what they're saying is that there's some rule that the Galatians need to keep in order to be truly saved. Uh, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, elsewhere, Paul writes this. This is how he says people are really saved. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. So to put it another way, it's salvation comes through Christ alone, by God's grace alone, through faith alone. So as soon as a person adds a rule to that, it ceases to be a gospel. It, it becomes that, that work, that other thing. Now let me give you an example that I, I encountered when I was a, a youth. Actually, I was about 12 years old when this happened to me. Um, I was in uh, a Sunday school class, and my teacher at the time began to teach us that if you really wanted to, to get saved, you needed to be baptized. And so if you, if you really want to, to be a true Christian, you need to be baptized to be saved. Thankfully, even at 12 years old, my, my older brother was in this class with me. He and I were just thinking, like, this isn't sounding, sounding right. So we began to challenge our teacher uh, about this, and we kind of heard those warning sirens going off. And I'm very thankful that my parents and my uh, other church leaders had instructed me well enough to, to when I, I heard that, that uh, something was clicking, like, man, this isn't meshing with what the real gospel is. But don't get me wrong here, I, I would definitely say that baptism is important, but it's not a saving act. Baptism is important for believers as, as an act of obedience, but it doesn't save you. So that, that's one example of one way that we might add to the gospel. But uh, one of the reasons that he, he writes this letter, again, is to help them avoid this message of the Judaizers. So do you guys remember, last week we defined the gospel, so I'm going to remind you, of how Paul defined it in verses 1 through 5 of last week. He said, basically, this is how I defined it, like he said, and it's like this. Our gracious God, grounding us peace with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, for our deliverance from evil, according to his will, for his glory. So Paul argues then that there really isn't another gospel. There is really only one good news. Now just... And what I said there, that's very countercultural by Paul saying that there's, there's only one gospel. There's only one Savior, one way that you can be saved. You know, we live in a culture where, where people like to say, well, it doesn't really matter what you believe as long as you believe something, and we're all going to end up in heaven. Well, let me just give you a, a few verses from Scripture, not just here in Galatians, but elsewhere. Uh, Jesus himself says this in John fourteen six, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. And Peter and John, they declare to a Jewish council, they say this in Acts 4.12, Nor is there salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And Paul, in writing to Timothy, would say this, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. You know, we could go through verses actually all morning. This actually make a good sermon sometime about Jesus being the only way of salvation. Yet, 
I think for Paul and for us that we're getting the point that there's only one way, one gospel for humanity. So by claiming that, it's not out of arrogance or intolerance like opponents like to accuse us of, but it's rather, it's what is taught in Scripture. Uh, you know, for example, if, if, I, if we were in a burning building and I, and I knew the, the right way to get out, I'd be saying like, oh, okay, hey, you need to, to head to the fire escape to head out. I wouldn't say something like, oh, you know, it doesn't really matter how you get out. Just, you know, you can try the window, you can try this. Just try to figure out your own way. And we're all going to end up in the same place. I mean, that doesn't, doesn't really work like that. The most loving option of those two is to tell the person the, the one way that they can escape. You know, it's a similar thing with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're not being arrogant or unloving by saying, hey, look, there's only one way a person can be rescued. Really often, the most loving thing that we can do in life is to tell people the truth. When we withhold the truth, it's actually very unloving. However, I, I, um, this last weekend, the, the youth and I, we went to this conference called Dare to Share. And this, at this youth conference, we... Um, we talk about evangelism a lot. It's, it's what it's about. It's about teaching us and equipping us to be intentional about sharing our faith with other people. The thing is, I, I think many of us, maybe we, we know intellectually that, that Jesus really is the only way of salvation. There's, there's only one gospel. Yet we, we live in such a way that, that we're like a practical pluralist, meaning that, that we don't really insist and we don't really talk about that the gospel is the only way a person can be saved. So if we really do believe that the gospel is something that people need to hear in order to be saved, we have to. We're going to be compelled to share the good news. Paul says this in Romans 10, 13 through 17. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. But not all have obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us. So faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. So the gospel is the only one in existence and it must be preached. It must be spoken and not hoarded. So don't withhold the best, ner- the best news a person can hear. Paul says that someone must hear it in order to respond to it. So don't live like a practical pluralist. If we really love people and love the gospel, we're going to be, that love is going to compel us to share it with others. So, so Paul then, even though he's angry in his tone with the Galatian church, he's really being loving. He's, he's angry because their, their souls are in danger and the church is in danger. So he says that these troublemakers, i.e. the Judaizers, are coming in, distorting, twisting the gospel that he taught them. Uh, Often in our churches, the greatest threat to us doesn't come so much from the outside, but from the inside. Heresy is much more dangerous to the church than persecution historically. If you're going to study church history, that would be be a fact that you could establish. Uh, Take the Arian controversy, for example. The message of the church, the gospel was almost lost because uh, Christians were being persuaded that Jesus wasn't really God. And the gospel was being lost. So Paul knows of this danger. And so he writes and rebukes and he writes to the Galatian churches because he's, he knows the danger of distorting and changing and twisting and having a counterfeit gospel. Paul is so 
frustrated and angry with his opponents that he pronounces a curse on them in the book of Galatians. Uh, That's verses 8 and 9. So Paul says this, just to remind you. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we said before, and now we say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. So for Paul, the, the message is more important than the messenger. And Paul says that, that a person who is uh, preaching and teaching a false gospel, let him be accursed. The ESV translates, it's actually this word, uh, anathema in Greek, which uh, literally means eternally bear the wrath of God. Or to put it in our English idiom, it would be to say something like, go to hell. So, to give you my loose paraphrase of that section, verses 8 and 9, Paul's basically saying, like, look, if somebody comes in and they start preaching a different gospel, let that person go to hell. And, and in case you didn't quite catch that the first time, in case you didn't quite hear me correctly, if somebody comes in, preaches a different gospel, let that person go to hell. Yikes. I mean, like, man, Paul, settle down a little bit. Um, that, that's, that, that's usually our reaction. But Paul, man, he's so zealous about the gospel. And sometimes I think the Greek language... Um, isn't nearly as tame as some of, some of our English translation, translations uh, would, would render it. But, but Paul, who's usually so loving, has some very harsh things about pe- to say about people who are uh, preaching a false gospel. But unless you think Paul is you know, having a bad hair day and just flying off the handle, he isn't the only one who says things like that. So, for example, the book of James. James writes in uh, chapter 3, verse 1, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know we who teach would be judged with greater strictness. And Peter writes in 2 Peter, 1, uh, 2 Peter 2, 1-3, But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bring upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of, the, because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. So there is a, I, I think, and just by, by way of, of reference, they're really repeating a lot of the things that Jesus said. If you go through the Gospels and you read some of the things that Jesus would say, he reserved his harshest language for the Pharisees and the religious teachers of his day that were teaching things that were contrary to what the Word of God had actually said. And I, I do think that, I'm not exactly sure, don't, don't quote me on this, but I think that the Bible seems to be indicating that there's a, a hotter place in hell for those who teach, with, who teach a heresy, a false prophet with a false message. God's Word is not to be messed with, distorted, or corrupted. God holds it in high esteem. And that's why Jesus would warn us, Matthew seven fifteen, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but are inwardly are ravenous wolves. So all of this should kind of be having us wrestle, wrestling through this and be, maybe be thinking, okay, what are some false gospels that we might be dealing with in our culture? Maybe, you know, it's probably not the, the Judaizer heresy, but it may be something else. So what are some common ones that we may deal with as believers uh, in the present day? And probably the most common one, I would say, for, for Americans, is the prosperity gospel. The prosperity gospel teaches that, that Jesus is really out for you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. All right? So if you're not healthy, wealthy, and happy, it's because of two things. One is you don't have enough faith. Well, the other one is you have sin in your life. 
So if you're not happy or wealthy or, or you're not wealthy, something is wrong with you. That's what the prosperity gospel teaches. Televangelists and some of the most popular preachers in America with some of the biggest churches are prosperity teachers. They, they preach a gospel that sounds similar, but it's actually a false gospel. Actually, this isn't a new heresy. You go back to the Old Testament. So this is old. Old Testament, Job's friends are the first prosperity gospel teachers. So they, they look at Job, who's in the middle of suffering. And by the way, I, just by way of reference, I think Job's friends actually did a good job at trying to comfort Job in his suffering until they began to talk. And as soon as they began to talk, that's when they really messed up. But anyway, so Job's in the middle of his suffering, and his friends are trying to comfort him, begin to talk, and basically they, this is what they're thinking. Like, okay, Paul, you must have, di- or Job, you must have did something wrong in order to be experiencing all this suffering. But we know from reading the book of Job that, that God had allowed Satan to, to test and refine Job's faith through this process. So why God did that to Job, we maybe may not have the, and I you know, the exact answer, but Job is a great book against those prosperity teachers because this isn't really a new heresy. Uh, Jesus, too. So it wasn't just Job's friends, but Jesus dealt with this with his disciples. Uh, John 9, 1 through 5 says this, And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work, work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So did you sense kind of the portion of the prosperity gospel uh, in the disciples? They were like, okay, this guy's blind, so either he sinned or his parents sinned. That's why he's blind. And Jesus was like, no, no, look, you guys don't quite have it correct. You know, there's, it's not that sin is the reason that this guy is blind. It's rather it's so that God's power could be displayed to him, in him. And to prove his point, Jesus heals this man. But this wasn't the only instance Jesus dealt with it with his disciples. Uh, he also dealt with, dealt with this deficient gospel in the book of Luke, uh, chapter 13, 1 through 5. So there were some at that present time, very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. That was a very degrading, um, I guess, shameful thing for them. And Jesus answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them, do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You know, I don't think Jesus could be clear here. It's not necessarily about some being worse sinners than others, and that's why some people, you know, experience a, a disaster or things like that. Rather, the most important thing is to live a life of repentance. That's more important than, than these other pro- things that the prosperity evangelists want us to believe. So be on guard then. Watch, watch the teaching that you hear, especially on television, about Christians that are supposed to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. Um, you know, one of the interesting things when, when, when you look at this, um, and I'll mention this a little later, is a lot of those teachers too, by the way, are, they, they feed off the poor. And that's one of the things that, that really burdens me with this false gospel. But lest you think that the prosperity gospel is the only one that we deal with, I think 
another one that we deal with in our culture because of the, the rise of psychology is the self-help or, in, in some ways, the Pelagian gospel. Now, you may say, who's Pelagian? Well, it actually comes from Pelagius. Pelagius was a monk who, at the, around the time of Augustine, so like late 300s, early 400s, he, he taught that you know, people were basically born with a blank slate, and what, what sin was is just kind of a learned behavior. So, re, re, so really, it's kind of like a disease that needs a cure rather than death. So the gospel for Pelagius was all about giving us a means in which to improve ourselves. Augustine, he, he hears Pelagius beginning to teach this, and he's gaining some traction. And Augustine writes, and he thinks, like, man, there's not something not right about this. And he says, in particular, it belittles sin and our need for grace. So he, he wrote against Pelagius, and eventually Pelagius was declared a heretic. So I, I praise God that Augustine had the spiritual wisdom and discernment to recognize and write against that self-improvement gospel. Uh, today, I think Pelagianism takes refuge in the, an area that I would call pseudo-gospel psychology, um, where the gospel really is coming in to solve your psychological problems and needs. It's kind of the same teaching, just with a, a different clothing. You know, I can, I, maybe you might be kind of curious what I mean. Um, it, I really kind of catch this in some gospel presentations Christians give. I think they're well-meaning, but their gospel really isn't the true gospel. For example, a person will say, like, well, you know, the, the gospel of Jesus Christ for him dying and rising again is to give you victory in areas of struggle. So if you're lonely, if you want to solve your loneliness, you need to come to Jesus. Or if you have a drug addiction... If you believe in Jesus, he's going to take away that drug addiction. Now, can Jesus help with loneliness and drug addiction? Absolutely he can. Jesus can help with those things. However, the gospel doesn't come in to solve all of our psychological needs and problems right away. Sometimes the gospel comes into our lives, takes root in our lives, and those things come as a result of this process we call sanctification, growing to be more like our Savior. The gospel isn't so much about curing a disease— as it is about bringing dead men to life. I think the problem with this gospel is it takes some of the benefits of the gospel and says, that's the gospel. It'd be like mistaking the engine for the caboose. So let's you think that the, those are the only two, so the prosperity gospel, the self-help gospel. There's also a false gospel of easy believism. Now this particular gospel, I think, is, is tricky. Because out of all the three gospels, you know, the false gospels that we've looked at so far, this one, I think, bears the most resemblance to the true. Um, what this teaches is that what all a person has to do to become a Christian is pray a prayer of salvation. The point is that we've got to get this person to a crisis moment to where they can get their fire insurance. You know, we've got to rescue them from hell. So, man, we've got to get to that point where they pray that prayer. And they pray that prayer, they're good. Because once saved, always saved. Well, not so fast. The danger of this gospel is it's not the gospel as it is taught in Scripture. It makes maybe for a good evangelistic campaign and maybe counting decisions, but it's not really the true gospel. I think, listen, and this is really key. When we call a person to salvation as it is found to a gospel, we're not only asking them to believe, but also to repent. Jesus says in Luke nine twenty three, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily, and follow me. You see, the, the cross daily, it's a way of life. 
It's a daily thing. So one should experience life transformation because of the gospel. Salvation doesn't stop with conversion, but ends in our glorification. Paul writes this in Romans 8, 29-30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So Paul is explaining that, that one's salvation begins with God's foreknowledge and predestination, moves through being called, being justified, being sanctified, and ultimately glorified. The problem with easy believism is that it teaches, in the words of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, a, a German pastor, teaches cheap grace and grace without repentance. Bonhoeffer would write in his book, Cost of Discipleship, and I think this is one of those books that all Christians should read. He writes this, Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. So when we consider that heresy of easy believism, we ought to be very careful in how we present the gospel. We, we know that for those of us who've been Christians for a while, it just isn't a system of beliefs that we adhere to and say, okay, that's true, but it's really a way of life. You know, and I think for, the, for me, this one is probably the, the easiest trap to fall into, just because we really do, we, we genuinely want people to come to know Christ, and sometimes it gets easy to kind of shortcut the process you know, we could go through some of the other false gospels, such as social action or the liberalism, legalism, uh, and much more. There's other false gospels that are out there, but of the making of false gospels, there is no end. So this morning, however, I, I did kind of want to highlight what I think are some of the, the harder ones that we may deal with, especially in our culture. So how then are we supposed to help ourselves, defend ourselves against these false gospels? Let me give you uh, four ways. The first one is to know the true. You need to know the true gospel. So remember how Paul begins the letter of Galatians. Um, last week we looked at Galatians 1, 1 through 5, where Paul, he defended, he defined the gospel to the Galatian churches. Because he wanted them to be able to say, okay, that's the true gospel, and know and identify the false gospel. Um, so when Pastor Sean, myself, and other people are delivering and declaring the gospel to, to you, sit at the edge of your seat. Lean in so that you can, you can hear it. Pay attention. Uh, if you remember last week, I gave the analogy of, of US, uh, U.S. Treasury agents being trained to spout counterfeits by, by dealing with the true bills all the time. So they spend so much time with those true bills that when that counterfeit bill comes along, they can go, oh, that's, that's not right. That's not lining up with the, the gospel message. So inoculate yourself from the false gospel by, by spending time getting to know the true. The second thing is this. So, so one, how we can guard ourselves. One is to know the true gospel. The second one is to look for the fruit. So Jesus says, back in Matthew 7, in warning of false prophets, you will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. So false gospels, then, would bear bad fruit. So look at the lies of those people who are trusting in those 
false gospels? What kind of produce, what kind of fruit do we see? What kind of disciples is it making? What sort of people are, are teaching it? Um, kind of going back to the prosperity gospel, I gave this a little earlier, but most of the disciples, I think, in this uh, who believe in the prosperity gospel are either arrogant or depressed. You know, arrogant because like, oh man, I've, I've really got it because I'm healthy, wealthy, and happy, so man, I, I nailed this. Or depressed because they're just, they're just not there. The true gospel produces neither arrogance or depression. Also, I, I, the teachers of this movement grow, grow wealthier and wealthier at the expense of the poor. Um, I think it was Pastor Sean, I think a few months ago, who posted a study of the richest pastors in the world. Most of them are prosperity gospel teachers in Africa. So I think there's something wrong with that. When you're in a, in a country like Africa that's very poor, and you're becoming some of the richest pastors in the world. Jesus didn't come to make us earthly rich, but rather rich in heaven. So the third thing would be is to keep watch on yourself. In writing to Timothy, Paul says this, Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so you will save both yourself and your hearers. So granted, you know, Paul's writing this to a pastor. He's like, okay, I, I bear the full weight of this. He's like, okay, watch what you preach. Watch your teaching. Watch your theology. Watch your gospel. And, and if I were to preach a false gospel, Paul's curse would fall on me. But this command is also important for you as well. So when you're thinking through the gospel and maybe hearing something new, to keep close watch on yourself. Um, by the way, us elders and, and pastors in the, in the church, we really, we, we really want to safeguard the gospel message for you. Matter of fact, I've got to give him uh, credit. Mickey, this week, he, he read through uh, what I was going to talk about because I, I really wanted to make sure that what I w- was saying was coherent with what, what the true gospel really is. So don't, don't just let us off the hook, though. We, we try to do as best we can to present the true gospel for you, but keep alert for us. Keep your ears attuned. Uh, pay, atten- pay close attention to the gospel when it is preached to you. So three, three things so far, three ways that we can guard ourselves. One is to know the true gospel. The, the second one is to look for the fruit. The third one is keep watch on yourself. And the fourth one is spend time with church history. I would go as far to say as I don't think there is a new church heresy that is out there. Really, it's the same heresy dressed up in, in new clothing. I think the, many, the problems a lot of us have with, with new things is because we don't really know the old things. So if you spend some time in the church history just dealing with some of those heresies that they dealt with, you really begin to realize, man, there really isn't nothing new under the sun, like Solomon would say. So spend some time in church history. You know, I wanted, I wanted to close this morning just by reminding you like, where, where Paul began the book of Galatians, defining the gospel. So just so for our remembrance, in order to help us remember, let me remind you how he defined it. It's our gracious God granting us peace with him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ, for our deliverance from evil according to his, his will for his glory. So my, my hope for you is that you've repented and believed in the true and one and only gospel. If you've fallen astray, maybe you have begun to been, been swayed by the false gospel, repent and believe in the true. But maybe you're here this morning and, and you're like, man, I, I think I, I, I'm in one of those, those false gospel camps and I really haven't trusted in the true. Well, for you, we, we, we all need to repent and believe. And it's an ongoing life process for, for both Christians and non-Christians. But for the Maybe someone who's been in the non-Christian camp, those false gospels that maybe you've been in. For, for you this morning, 
Trust in the true gospel, the gospel, the only gospel that can save your soul. So I'm going to close this morning uh, with prayer. Uh, if you're a Christian, really be, be praying for yourself maybe and, and how we would go about sharing the true gospel with others and safeguarding our own hearts. And maybe if, if, and if you're not there, take this morning and repent and believe in the gospel for the first time. So let's, let's go to the Lord in prayer. you for the, for the true gospel, the gospel alone that can rescue our souls, the gospel that can deliver us from ourselves, deliver us from sin, and deliver us from the wrath. And God, I do pray for those of us this morning that we would be uh, a bold in declaring your gospel to those who do not know. God, I do pray that we would guard our hearts, guard our teaching, guard our theology against the false gospels that are out there. God, I do pray this morning that um, if we're maybe re- wrestling and, and trying to understand the gospel, that you would uh, sink the truth of it deeply uh, within our hearts, deeply within our souls. And God, may we all repent and believe in the true gospel. Lord, we th- I thank you for your word. I thank you for the Apostle Paul who had such a clear understanding of the gospel. I pray that you'd give us such a clear understanding as well. In your name we pray. Amen.